It's a privilege to play our part in all that God is doing in and through you. To find out what your next step could be or to partner with us to reach more and more people by giving financially, head to our website elevatechurch.me and download our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps. A lot of pressure when you have a title for a series like that, but uh, here we go. We launched this series last week, and uh, if you're just uh, dropping in here for the first time today, missed last week, we have a podcast, and you can uh, catch up uh, on that. And, and by the way, shout out to our podcast audience around the world. Good to have you with us. Week two of our series, The Unsettling Solution. For, and the question is simply this, and we launched this series last week asking a question, and the question is simply this. Have you ever wondered why somebody wouldn't want Christianity to be true? Not Just wouldn't want Christianity to be true. With the recognition that there's a difference between saying, I don't believe Christianity is true, compared with saying, I don't want Christianity to be true. Because to be honest... I find it harder to believe people wouldn't want Christianity to be true than I find it to believe that they don't believe it's true. In fact, to not believe it's true on the surface, that's kind of easy. I mean, you think about it. There's this guy, Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, walked the the earth publicly for three and a half years and uh, did a bunch of miracles. And well, at least, you know, allegedly, because we only have somebody written account that, that, that these things actually happened. But... If they didn't happen, wouldn't you want them to be true? Like there's one, it's classic. There's one where Jesus, he's been teaching, thousands of people gathered, teaching all afternoon. It's kind of pushed past dinner time, too late for people to, to, to be able to get home in time to go to the supermarket and pick their groceries and get home and prepare the meals. And so Jesus says, man, I think, I think we, we, him and his uh, 12 uh, merry men, I think we should feed them. So Jesus hijacks this poor kid's lunchbox and starts handing that out and actually ended up feeding about 15,000 people from one lunchbox. And, we, and they, in fact, even they collected leftovers. Wouldn't you want that to be true? Because if that's true, then that suggests that we have access to a God who can kind of take your life and something that you might think is lacking or missing or not enough and actually multiply that, whether it's more joy, more peace, more love, more, whatever the more that, 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 that Jesus can actually pr- produce more. Wouldn't, wouldn't we want that to be true? Then there's all of his teaching. You know, this stuff is teaching, this and that, and he's got stories. And, and you know, some people say, well, I don't believe it's true, because I don't believe, because, you know, that stuff was just written by, by men. You know, well, yeah, sure it was, absolutely. Some men, some dudes writ, wrote that down. And the reason some dudes wrote that down is because reading and writing was very much a specialist task. Not everyone, in fact, it was actually a small percentage of the population 2,000 years ago in that part of the world that learned to read and write. And so it was only that a few people were even capable of writing down what Jesus allegedly taught. But here's the kicker. Some of what Jesus allegedly taught that was written down was so good that if you were the one writing it, and it wasn't Jesus that said it, but it was your own idea, you would have signed off on it. You wouldn't have given credit away. You'd have been like, hmm, the parable of the prodigal son by Brian. Like, because you, you know it's so good. And you could be like, I'm going to take the credit for this. 
But they didn't. They gave the credit to Jesus. This is a story that Jesus told. Man, wouldn't you want that to be true? That, that you can be lost and that God actually pursues you and he actually wants a relationship with you even when you knew you were lost, even when you were down, even when you were hopeless, that God went after you and he didn't go after you because he was mad at you. He went after you because he was mad about you. Wouldn't you want that to be true? And then there's the kind of death and resurrection thing. You know, and I get it. Like, he's the only one to pull that stunt off that he died and under his own power, sort of thing, he three days later rose from the grave. And, you know, we weren't there. So, how do we know that really happened? Well, we know that, well, we, like, I believe it happened because there was hundreds of people that saw him die and then three days plus later saw him walking around. One of whom was his brother, his younger brother, a guy named James. James. Before Jesus died, called Jesus his brother and actually wasn't even one of his followers. We're just like, he's my older brother. That's it. That's a fact. And then James would have seen his brother killed on a cross. James would have known that his brother was buried in a grave. And yet some days later, James runs into him, alive and kicking. And I'm like, and here's what happened. In that moment, James went from calling Jesus his brother to calling Jesus his Lord. Something happened to James that caused him to shift his recognition of who Jesus really was. This one I can relate to. I have an older brother, and he's got some pretty nice qualities about him, but there's nothing that's going to cause me to start calling him my Lord. Except... If I was to see him killed, if I was to be at the funeral and saw him put in the grave and the, the, the soil put back on him, and then bump into him about four days later at Woolies, if I did, if that happened, in that moment, Lord Philip, I submit my life to you. That's one of the reasons I believe it's true, but even if... You don't believe it's true. Wouldn't you want it to be true that God has the power over death? That there's nothing that can separate you from God? Man. And chances are you know some people who don't believe Christianity is true, but actually like Jesus. Can you identify? Like They like Jesus. They like what he had to say. They like how he treated people. They like that he get, got stuck into religious people. The only people he ever got angry at. And uh, that's not a new thing. Because actually when Jesus walked the earth in his public life between 30 and 33 and a half, people who weren't like Jesus actually liked Jesus. And I think one of the reasons that people who weren't like Jesus actually liked Jesus is the word that we uh, threw out there last week. And really it's the big uh, idea behind this whole series. It's the word grace. And grace is a churchy word, and it's not necessarily a word we weave into our everyday water cooler photocopier conversations. And I didn't want to give you the Bible college definition, so I gave you sort of the everyday definition. The everyday definition that we put out for grace is what you and I crave when we get caught. What you crave when you said you were going to do something and you didn't. And the person you promised comes to you and says, how did you go with that? And you're like, ah. In that moment, you crave grace. You don't want to get what you deserve. So you're hoping for a little bit of grace. 
when you did the thing that you said you weren't going to do and someone sprung you and you're like, oh, I was hoping you wouldn't find out. But they did. And now they're talking to you about it. And you've got your fingers crossed hoping that they're going to give you a little grace, that they're going to give to you what you don't deserve. And grace was unsettling when Jesus walked the earth, and it's still actually unsettling for some people today. And one of the reasons it's unsettling is because we are more used to a word and an idea, the F word, a four-letter word, starting with F, called fair. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> oh, you people. We, see, this, this concept, we understand. You do the crime, you do the time. If you're the perp, then you, know, you might not like that you have to do the time, but you at least understand it. I did the crime, I got caught, now I got to do the time. And if you're the vic, you love this one because somebody else did the crime and then you see them doing the time and you go, sucked in. Because you know in that moment, they're getting what they deserve. And then Jesus comes along and starts talking about grace, about giving people what they don't deserve. And you're like, wait, what? This doesn't make sense. It's very unsettling. And it was unsettling for people that walked the earth when Jesus walked the earth because up to that point in history, in their history, they'd known God mostly about being fair. Their concept about God was mostly about dishing out the punishment for people who had disobeyed him. You did the crime, now you're going to do the time. And that made sense. Again, they didn't always like it, but at least they understood it. And Jesus came along. And he changed the rules. Now, if you like playing board games and someone breaks the rules, that bothers you. And you say to them, hey, you're breaking the rules. And you reach for the box and you fish out the little piece of paper and you say, see, right here, this is the rule. But here's the thing that Jesus had that you don't have. Jesus wrote the rules. And when you, if you're the creator of Monopoly, guess what you can do? You can change the rules anytime you want because you wrote the rules, you can change the rules. And when Jesus came to this earth, one of the things he did is he changed the rules. You knew God to be all about truth. Now I'm going to demonstrate what God's really like, that he is both full of grace and truth. So. Let me drop you into a story. If you've got our Elevate Church AU app, you can tap on the Bible title. It's going to take you to something written by a guy named Luke. Now, officially, his name is Dr. Luke, not like Dr. Who or Dr. Seuss. He was actually a doctor, a medical doctor. And what Luke uh, wrote down actually happened long after Jesus had been killed and, and allegedly risen from the, the grave. Because what Luke had done is this, is this idea that Jesus was the Son of God and he died and he, and he rose from the grave was spreading like wildfire around the, 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 the known world, the Roman, Republic, Roman Empire in particular. And Luke got to a point where he thought, man, I'm going to look into this because this sounds too good to be true. So he took off his stethoscope and he picked up his pen and, and, his, and his little papyrus and he started going around literally 
interviewing people who had seen and, and, and been a part of what Jesus had done while Jesus was on the earth. So Luke's account, when you read what he had to say, wasn't Luke's eyewitness account. It was his recording of interviews with eyewitnesses. So, okay, Luke could have been maybe a little bit crazy, so you don't believe it. But if he wasn't, then, you know, this is what, he's, what he came up with. So there's one scene that Luke's, that an eyewitness recounted to Luke where Jesus uh, was, was passing through a town called Jericho. And there was a man there, his name's Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus was the head tax man and quite rich. Now, let's put it up. There's, it's important to see this. Zacchaeus was the head tax man and quite rich. The way it worked is the Roman... Uh, Republic from their headquarters in Rome kind of outsourced tax collecting. So you, if you had the ability, you could actually buy a license, like a, like a franchise kind of thing, to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic. And, and, and not only that, is you could actually then, and, and this is what Zacchaeus would have done, you can set up like a pyramid scheme uh, below you, where you had other people collecting taxes as a part of your network, and they would, they would collect taxes for Rome, pass them up to you, and you'd send them on to Rome. But actually, everyone would, would take a little bit extra from the people. And they'd pass a little bit of that extra back up the line, but they'd keep a bit of that extra for themselves. And this was allowed to go on, because Rome sort of said, hey, as long as we're getting what we asked for, we don't really care what else happens. And so tax collectors were becoming very, very rich, especially this guy. He was the, he was the head, uh, he was the godfather of the tax uh, rort that was happening in Jericho. So Zacchaeus would have been known to everybody and actually because him and his uh, network were ripping everyone off, he would have been known to everybody and despised by everybody. So Zacchaeus is there. There's a crowd gathered because Jesus is passing by. Jesus was starting to become a bit of a rock star because of the miracles and the teaching and people like, wow, we got to see this guy for ourselves. And he's passing through. We're going to go and watch this, uh, this uh, parade. And so Zacchaeus, he wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way, <laughs> which, you know, when you read these stories, put yourself in there. I can see this. There's Zacchaeus and, and he wants to see Jesus crowd in the way. And they know Zacchaeus wants to see him. So Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus pivots left, they all pivot a bit left. Zacchaeus pivots right, they all pivot a bit right. Zacchaeus is like, ah, They ain't letting that little tax-collecting criminal scumbag get to the front of the queue. And Zacchaeus was a short man, couldn't see over the crowd. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. And when Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus... Hurry down. Now, <laughs> I don't know why Jesus stopped. I, I wondered just, you know, I like to read this and like enjoy reading what Jesus did because I'm thinking to myself, I probably would have stopped too if I'd seen a grown man up a tree. It's not something you see every day. But he saw Zacchaeus up a tree and he says, hurry down. And then I wonder if in this exact moment, the rest of the crowd went silent. And thought to themselves, yeah, finally, somebody's going to give Zacchaeus exactly what he deserves. Get him, Jesus. Sick him. 
And when Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You're allowed to think what you're thinking. It's fine. The crowd thought exactly what you're thinking right now. Everyone saw the incident and was indignant and grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? That's not fair. Hey, we got the kids up early. We got here early. Few of us actually slept here overnight. We got the curb. Some of us made placards. Some of us even had t-shirts printed. And yet none of us get to even talk to Jesus, let alone get invited for a meal with him. That's just not fair. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Now, spoiler, because by the way, you're allowed to read this stuff for yourself. Spoiler, Zacchaeus went on to commit to giving back half of his income and committed that if he ever got caught skimming from the people again, that he would pay back to them four times more what he'd skimmed. But he didn't commit to that before Jesus approached him. He committed to that after Jesus had approached him. Jesus lent into him. Let me use a churchy word. Jesus approached Zacchaeus, which, by the way, when nobody else would. Jesus looked up to Zacchaeus, which, by the way, when we launched as Elevate Church, this was one of the stories that I shared about the actual what God is like, that God looks up to people that everyone else looks down on. God actually elevates his gaze because he sees our worth when everyone else would actually try to block us from getting better, from moving forward. Jesus did that first. Zacchaeus was still a tax collector when Jesus approached him. Zacchaeus was still somebody guilty of the crime, of ripping people off before Jesus approached him. And it was actually after and only after. And, And this is the thing that differentiates Jesus from religion. Religion says, get fixed up, then you're worthy of Jesus. Jesus says, I see your worth even while you're broken, and I'm going to approach you to actually demonstrate to you and other people of your worth. And when you see that, and when you receive that grace, Zacchaeus didn't get what he deserved. Jesus didn't deal out fair. Jesus dealt out something much better. Grace, and in response, Zacchaeus' life was transformed. Well, I'm going to give you two for. I gave you two for last week. Let's do another two for. That was something that Jesus did, because Jesus would do things to demonstrate what God was really like, and He would also teach things that would demonstrate what God was really like. So let me drop you in to something that God taught. This was recorded by Matthew, and uh, in the app you'll have to. Touch the screen, touch the screen. Take it to Matthew chapter 20. This is Jesus' teaching, trying to explain how seemingly upside down the kingdom of God is to what people maybe thought. God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, this is kind of the idea. You've got a vineyard. It's picking time. You need some workers to do the picking. 
you would go down to the town square and day laborers, which still happens in parts of the world today, day laborers would be there. They're not your employees, but they're available and uh, you would go and find them if you needed some workers. You would, you would, you know, number you, 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 you'd pick, you know, get as many as you needed for whatever the job was and you'd commit to say, yep, if you work for this amount, doing this much work, you know, and then at the end of your work, I'll pay you and, and we're done. That was the end of the transaction. So that's what this estate manager had done, gone down to the town square, hire all the people he needed to work on the vineyard. And they agreed, the estate manager and the day laborers, they agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Now, this, is, this happened, we know now, and you're about to find out why we know this now, at about 6 a.m. So this is like beginning of the work day, Laborers had got there, the ones that got there early, you know, were sort of like in the front of the line because they wanted to get picked first. And they got picked, 6 a.m., agreed to work for a dollar a day, and off they went to work. Later, at about 9 o'clock, the manager saw some other man hanging around the town square unemployed. And he told them to go work in his vineyard, and he would pay them a fair wage. And so they went. And then the estate manager did the same at noon, and again at 3 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock, he went back and found still others standing around. He said, why are you standing around here all day doing nothing? And they said, well, because no one's hired us. And he told them to get to work in his vineyard. So right now, there's been a crew working since 6 a.m. Now it's 5 p.m. Probably there's only about an hour of work time left. And by the way, by the time they got from the town square to the vineyard and got into this place and you know, got the secretaries out, it was probably not even an hour's worth of work left. But you know, that was the gig. And he promised all of them, the, the, the nine, the 12, the three, the five, that he would give them a fair wage. So when the day's work was over, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and go on to the first. Now, this is a story, okay? Back it up, back it up, guys. You gotta, you're getting way out of line. Back it up, back it up. Back up the slides. You can do it. Yeah, good boys, good boys, good boys. You'll be thinking, Jesus is telling this story, this, things are about to get crazy here. Because right now, the foreman's tasked with trying to wrangle these pickers for the, for the 6 a.m. to get in line. And, and to be honest, by the way, everyone else, don't jump in the 6 a.m. queue because you got here at 9. And then the 9, you're there. And then the, the 12, you're there. The 3, you're there. The 5, you're there. And, and start with the 5 p.m. Pay, pay them. You, now, now, remember, you're sitting there going, man, this is going to go crazy. Plus, you're all reaching for your abacus. Because you're like... How's it? So, I did the math so that you wouldn't have to. So, here's how this breaks down. All right, you can put the slide up now, boys. 6 a.m., they got promised for a day's work, turned out to be about 12 hours, a buck, a dollar. Okay? Now, take it back. The 5 p.m., if you work it out, an hour is about eight cents. 3 p.m., three hours, 25 cents, got to round it. 12 p.m., 6 hours, 50 cents, 9 a.m., they work for 9 hours, 75 cents, and then, you know, that's, that's what you would expect. That would be fair, fair. Now, fair based on the fact that the estate manager committed to paying the 6 a.m. people a buck, and then the rest of them, he committed a fair wage. But, you know, once you've played your abacus, you've, yeah, that sounds about fair, right, Andrew? Andrew, the accountant, how am I doing? Astounding, I know. Those hired at five o'clock came up and were each given a dollar. 
Now, if I'm in the line, and these workers, they would be working alongside each other regardless of the shift and mixing and mingling through the day. If I'm in the line, probably up to that point, I've heard the six... See, if you're the 6 a.m. people, you know that you're owed a dollar. If you're the rest, you don't know what you're going to get paid. You just know it's going to be fair. But you've heard the 6 a.m. people talking about the fact that they're going to get a dollar. And now you've seen the 5 p.m. people and they get given a dollar. And you think to yourself, huh, Whoa, this is going to be great. Those 6 a.m. people, they thought the estate manager said to them that it's a dollar a day. Turns out it's actually a dollar an hour. Woo-hoo! So everyone's excited. Even the 6 a.m. people, like, oh, yeah, well, that changes everything. That's going to be 12 bucks. I thought he said a dollar a day, but he said a dollar an hour. <laughs> Woohoo! But then everyone got the same, each of them one dollar. And you're allowed to think what you're thinking. That's not fair. And a spokesperson for the 6 a.m. crew fronted the estate manager and said, Oi, these last workers put in only one easy hour and you just made them equal to us who slaved all day under a scorching sun. The estate manager said to the one speaking for the rest, friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed to a wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? And are you going to get stingy because I'm generous? Now, I shared this with our team before. I'm going to bring you into the, to the a loop now. I'm going to take you to Bible college. I'm going to give you a fast-track education. In all of Jesus' stories, the, the, the characters in the stories represent somebody. And typically, there's God or some God character, and there's us, we. Only in this story, there's two groups of we. There's the God character, and yes, that, that's the estate manager. But now there's two groups of we. There's the 6 a.m. crew we, and there's the rest of us. And have you noticed it's only the 6 a.m. crew who are upset? Everyone else, they're like, it's a great day. And what Jesus was trying to get across here is that God's not fair. He doesn't limit what he does with what's his to do with whatever he wants and however he wants to do it. He doesn't limit it to fair. He doesn't do fair. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't give out fair. In fact, he is better than fair. Grace isn't fair. And that's why it's so unsettling because we understand fair. The 6 a.m. people, they thought they understood God. And they thought God was fair. And they thought that, that to get God's approval, to get God's favor, to get God's blessing, you had to work for it. And every other group, the nine, the 12, the three, the five, they got to experience that grace isn't about getting what you deserve. Grace isn't about working for God's approval and God's affection. It's about putting our trust 
in the hands of a generous God who doesn't do fear but does better than fear. Grace doesn't equal fear. Grace is better than fear. And, And I would encourage some of you to do something as simple as write this down somewhere. Put it on your dashboard. Put it on your smartphone. Put it on the back of your toilet door. Wherever you spend time contemplating. Wherever you spend time needing to be reminded of this truth, that we, wouldn't you want this to be true? When you mess up, wouldn't you want this to be true? When you said to yourself, I'm only going to have a few drinks, and then a few drinks becomes a pattern of substance abuse, and one day you realize you've pushed people away and you've destroyed relationships and burnt through money and, and, and everything that goes with that, and, 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 and you wake up and you think, man, I can't keep going on like this, and you cry out to God, and even though it was you that did the crime, God doesn't respond with the punishment that you deserve. Now, I'm not saying there won't be consequences to our natural actions, although God promises to help us through and beyond those circumstances and consequences, but in the moment where we say, God, he gives us grace, and grace isn't fair. Grace is better than fair. When you decided that you were going to, you know, take things a little bit too far with that person that you're not married to, and by the way, it might be because you're married, and, or they're married, or either way, you're not married, and God says, it's not my best. And you realize, man, why did I do that? Or why do I keep doing that? And then you get to a point where you think, I gotta, I gotta turn my life around. I gotta, there's gotta be something better. And you cry out to God, and God, He's, He knows what you've done. He's seen what you've done. He, He was watching all along. And you're like, God, I need your help. And instead of giving you judgment and giving you fear and giving you punishment and giving you what deserve, which again doesn't mean there aren't going to be natural consequences that you're going to have to work through, but in that moment, he doesn't do fear. He does better than fear. He does grace. Well, you remember standing at that altar, giving those vows, and you really meant them. You meant them. You wrote them. You meant them. You stood and you looked at that person that had been your fiance and was now about to become your husband, your wife, and you look at them in the eye and you say, for better and worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and now you're signing the divorce papers, and you think... I didn't sign up for this. And, and then you even remember that, man, there's some stuff that I did in this relationship that got us to this point. And I'm kind of partly to blame here. And you say, God, I, I really did mean that when I, when I was at the altar, but now I'm at the lawyer's office. And, and God, can you help me? Can you, I mean, maybe this is beyond restoration, but can you help me move beyond? In, and God doesn't give you fear. God doesn't, well, you remember that time you said this and that time you did this and those things that you promised that you didn't deliver. Because you remember all that. So why does God need to remind you? What you need is to know is God's not going to give you fear. He's going to give you better than fear. He's going to give you grace. He's going to give you what you crave when you get caught. He's going to give you something that you can't earn and we don't deserve, but it's better. Wouldn't you want, want that to be true. So I'm going to 
just now finish with giving you an opportunity. I started before talking about the difference between believing that Christianity is true and wanting it to be true. I know most of you, because I know you and know your stories, most of you have made a decision to acknowledge that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he died and he rose again and rose in exchange for your sin and died so you and I would never have to. And you've made that decision to follow him and put your faith in him. But some of you maybe haven't. And if you haven't, we're just going to give you an opportunity now to make that decision, to say, yeah, you know what? I think I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. I think I'm ready to say, yes, I believe you are who you say you are. So in a moment, all I want you to do, for those of you that are ready to make that decision, whether it's you know, for the first time, just to put your hand up and you're kind of saying, God, that's me. It's like when you're in class, you say to the teacher, I'm here and, and, I, and I'm ready. You're saying, God, that's me. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to put my trust in you. And then when I've seen your hand, you can put it down. I'm going to pray for you. And then I'm going to tag off to Jared. So those of you that have not yet made that decision to say, yes, Jesus, I believe who you say you are, and you're ready to say yes to him today, how about you just slip your hand up, and I'll see your hand. You can put it down, and then we're going to pray. And I want to miss anybody here. Okay. Well, let me do what we did last week. I want to pray for Christmas coming up, and specifically that... God would use us, Elevate Church, on the Sunday morning, 22nd of December, 10 a.m., and Tuesday, Christmas Eve, 24th, 6 p.m., to have people here that have yet to put their faith in Jesus, or maybe got blown out of the waters of a church in their past and vowed they'd never come back, and yet God's drawing them. And some of them you already know, so if you do and you're thinking of someone to invite Get that person's name in your head, in your heart now, and I'll pray for them. And then beyond that, there's people that have driven past. There's people that will kind of know about us. We're going to be going kind of big on online advertising because, again, if you don't know somebody or you don't know the church, we're invisible to unchurched people, but we can get in front of them via a screen. We're going to do that. And some of your giving is going to translate into us actually reaching out to people to invite them along. Uh, here on those two opportunities. So let's pray for them right now because I'm going to give the same invitation then as we did today. And we want a lot of hands to go up because we want to know that people, that God's used us, us simpletons, <laughs> to have actually presented Jesus for who he is. That people who aren't like Jesus liked Jesus. So God, we thank you in advance for December 22. And December 24, that you would use our two Christmas live experiences to be a place that, by, that already you're drawing people by your Holy Spirit to be here, whatever their backstory is, God, that they know that they're welcome, that they even have a sense, maybe that, that, that's unsettling to them, that, that they actually uh, belong here and that there's a God that loves them and doesn't judge them and wants better for them. And that we would see people taking steps to get closer to you in and through what we do here in, in and around Christmas with Elevate in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for another inspiring message from Elevate Church in Perth, Australia. 
For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps.